Well, as Libby uh, mentioned, we're going through a sermon series looking at different paradoxes in the Bible. And today we hit upon um, a doozy, um, the Joshua paradox in that passage from uh, Joshua chapter 8 and verses 1 to 8. The reality is that we live in a world that is full of paradox. We live in a world, for example, that has never been supposedly better connected with each other. So whether it's through a mobile phone, whether it's through a tablet, whether it's through the internet, we can instantly be told of something that is happening around the world. Uh, maybe like me, you had to turn off your news alert app at, uh, when you went to bed last night so that your mobile phone didn't wake you up at 5 a.m. and tell you who won between McGregor and Mayweather uh, in the boxing match because I was so desperate to find out I wasn't. Um, we find out about things that happen immediately on the other side of the planet. And yet at the same time, we live in a society which is increasingly disconnected and a society and a culture that is increasingly at unease and dis-ease with itself. We live in a world where people have instant access to each other, where we can follow each other and see what fantastic holidays or meals etc. Uh, festival fringe event, book festival event that all our friends and family have been to and we can stalk people on Facebook or Twitter and, and, and just discover what fantastic lives everybody else is leading that puts ours in the shade. But the reality also is that at the same time there has never been a time when so many people have felt so lonely, so connected with a phone or a tablet, and yet also struggling to build real relationships and friendships. We know the news from the other side of the planet. We don't know the names of the people who live five, six, eight doors down from us on the same street. So paradoxes are everywhere, including in the Bible, included within the Christian faith. We looked at them some already in the previous weeks. The Abraham paradox, the God who needs nothing but demands everything. The Moses paradox, the God who is far away and yet very close. And this morning we come to one of the toughest, one of the biggest, what has been described as the Joshua paradox. The God who is terribly compassionate. And whether you've got a faith or no faith, this is one of the big questions. It's always stayed within the top five questions that people have about faith, one of their objections, what are called apologetics answers or questions. If there is a God, why does he allow war to take place? We'll look at the question of suffering next week. Libby gets that one to tackle uh, next Sunday. But on this particular day, we're looking at the whole subject of war. And in particular, what do we do with these stories from the Old Testament? Stories like Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, or, or, or stories like in Joshua chapter 8, uh, where he goes on to the next city, um, and because you're a good Scot, Katrina, you pronounced it as I, um, I pronounce it as AI because I'm English. Um, but what do we do when God tells his people to raise an army, 30,000 people, to ambush the people of Ai, and then once they've captured the city, 
to totally raze it to the ground, to set fire to it, to kill every single person in that city and not to leave a single person living. What do we do with that God who is seemingly the same God that we know through the person of Jesus? At first glance, this incident in Joshua chapter 8 does appear to be horrendous. A city wiped out. We're told in chapter 8 and verse 25, 12,000 men and women are killed in one day. The only survivor is the king of Ai, who is then impaled on a pole and left there for all to see by the command of God. And then a cairn is built over his body to serve as a reminder to everybody what happened that day, all seemingly on the direct orders of God himself. Is this, as some people have suggested, ethnic cleansing? Is it a sort of Jehovah Jihad, where a holy war is conducted in the name of God? And even from our current situation, we see how dangerous it can be when one religion starts to commit violence and indeed wage war in the name of God? Does it justify present-day Israel being able to do anything it wants, including taking land off the Palestinians? Just yesterday afternoon, we had a phone call, and a a lovely um, 85-year-old woman from Dunfries was ringing to recommend a church to a friend of hers um, in Edinburgh, and she wanted to make sure that we were a truly biblical church and I was watching the cricket so Kathy took the phone call and uh, took one for the team and because she went this person went on for quite a length of phone call asking question after question and really it came down to what was our position towards the nation of Israel did we think as a church that the current nation of Israel was the same as the biblical picture of Israel and Kathy said well I probably think on that point we'll have to disagree at which point the lovely gentle 85 year old woman from Dunfries said well that means that you're cursed and my dear I'd hate for you to be cursed and Kathy said well well, I'd hate to be cursed as well. And they just agreed to disagree about Israel. And she thought that she would recommend her friend to another church that was sound and biblical and really evangelical. But is that really what we're supposed to get out of this passage, that Israel can do whatever it wants, including and especially perhaps to the people that live in Palestine, because actually it's the promised land Because God gave them permission to wipe out Jericho and to wipe out Ai, does that mean that Israel can do whatever it wants in today's world and today's society? Or does it reveal what many people suspect? And if we're honest, many Christians actually operate like this. That the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. So the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and wrath, anger. He's out to get you. The God of the New Testament is the cuddly one. He's the God of love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. And if we're honest, even those of us who are Christians operate like this. Once we become Christians, we're seemingly drawn to read from the New Testament... And we tend to just ignore 
the Old Testament. How do we get our heads round this? As I say, it's one of the big obstacles to faith for some people, not least for some people who are serving in the armed forces. I'll never forget a conversation that I had 10 years ago with a guy called Mike. Mike had recently graduated from Cambridge University, and Mike's whole university career had been sponsored by the army. His, his dad was in the army, and his uh, course of life was to go into the army, and he was about to go into the army. And we were on a, a Christian house party in France, and I asked Mike, have you ever thought about what it means to be a Christian in the army? Even though he'd been brought up within a Christian family, even though he'd been brought up going to a really, really good church, Mike had never actually taken the time to step back and think, was it okay for a Christian to be in the army? And I'll never forget the two hours that we spent around a golf course in northern France. That was my excuse why I lost the game. Um, talking to Mike and listening to him and helping him think through what did it mean for him as a Christian to be in the army? Was it okay for him as a Christian to be in the army? It's one of the questions that the early Christians had to wrestle with. As soon as people started to become Christians who were soldiers in the Roman army, they had to think through, was it okay for them to stay in the army or did they have to leave the army once they became a Christian? Mike was a very committed Christian, a remarkable young man. When he went to Sandhurst later that year, he graduated with the Sword of Honor at Sandhurst. About four years later, he was decorated because of action that he took under fire to help his unit escape in Afghanistan. A remarkable man, but he never actually thought through what it was for a Christian to be in the army. And then there are the people, often out with the church, outside the church, for whom this question is a huge one. Well-known people like Stephen Fry or Richard Dawkins who will say that this is one of their main obstacles to believing in God. In The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins describes God in this remarkable way. Look at it on the screen. The God of the Old Testament, he said, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. You read that and you think, go on Dawkins, tell me what you really think. But I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, well, I don't believe in that God either. Richard Dawkins, if that is your picture of God, then somehow, for some reason, and it's always been very curious to me how angry Richard Dawkins is. What has gone on in his life that has left him so angry? Because his anger is seemingly disproportionate to the actual issue. Well, how do we get our heads round some people's picture of God that comes from stories like Joshua chapter 8? What I want to do is just run through four or five 
things that I've discovered this week. If it's helpful to you, then please take it away, think about it and use it. Maybe to give you confidence in sharing your faith with people around you. Maybe it's helpful for you because this has been a question for you. Maybe you aren't a Christian and this for you, if you're honest, is a biggie. It's one of the, the roadblocks to faith for you. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, but nagging away in your mind is this question. How do you deal with passages like this? Well, I think the first thing to say is that what we have here is a picture of God who is patient. The God that we see here is a God of patience. We need to look at the context. The promise that was given to Abram in Genesis chapter 15 to take the promised land was given to Abram 400 years before these events take place. So God has been waiting for 400 years before these events take place. This is not the result of a bad-tempered bully, to use Dawkins' words, who simply gets out of bed on the wrong side one morning and orders his army to destroy Jericho and to destroy Ai. God has waited patiently for 400 years for the behavior of the Canaanites to change. He's given them 400 years to change their behavior, to change the way in which they act towards each other, and above all, to change the way in which they think about him. Someone described it in a commentary that I read this week, that God acts more like a compassionate gardener who wants to see good come, but eventually has to take drastic action. If I'm honest, that's how I operate as a gardener. I'm a compassionate gardener who will look out at my back garden and think, I'm just waiting for good to come. I don't do anything. And seemingly, the garden gets worse every day and every week. And every time I'm going to cut the grass, wouldn't you know, it rains. And God is a bit like me in some ways, but he's better than me, and he's a better gardener than me. But he's a compassionate gardener who's waiting to see what will happen. And he's wanting good to come. But when good doesn't come, then he takes action. Look at the story of Moses and Pharaoh, where time after time after time, God, through Moses, gives Pharaoh opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, plague after plague after plague, to let his people free. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And it's only at the last minute that God sends, sadly, the plague where all the firstborn sons are killed and then eventually wipes out the Egyptian army as they're about to pursue the Israelites themselves. It's seen in the ministry and the life of Jesus where he tells this curious parable in Luke chapter 13 with the parable of the fig tree. He wants people to come to him by themselves. But if they don't, he will act and there will be consequences to their actions. So a God who is patient. Secondly, a reminder of the historical context. 
This is Bronze Age Canaan, not 21st century Europe. The events that occur in Joshua 6, 7, and 8 occur probably between 1400 and 1200 BC. These are prehistoric times. And the ancient Near East was not covered by the Geneva Convention. There was no just war theory. That did not come around for another 1,500, 2,000 years. There was no idea of proportional response in warfare. War was brutal. Life was brutal. Death was part of life. But the Israelites, even though they're operating in that particular context and that particular culture, the Israelites are commanded to offer terms of peace to the other tribes, the other clans, the other nations. That was unheard of in Bronze Age times. Why are they told to do that? Because they're reflecting God's character, God's character of justice, holiness, and compassion, as well as judgment. If you look at the surrounding chapters, Israel is forbidden from fighting and conquering the other neighboring people, like the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites. It's only the Canaanites that they're told to take this action against. And the third thing is to bear in mind that in this particular context and in this culture, the nation equaled the God. In a way that we can't really understand, the nation was associated with the deity that it worshipped and followed. It was aligned with them. It represented them and it stood for the different deities that they worshipped and followed. And it was impossible to distinguish between the two. And the Canaanites, well, their religion was very different to the God that we follow. And the violence, fourthly, was limited to Canaan, as I mentioned. It was not carte blanche for Israel to attack every nation then or now. War is always sinful, sometimes sadly necessary, but it is not God's ideal. It was never part of the world that God created. It's always caused by our inhumanity to each other, usually revolving around greed and power and money. And we can't take the destruction of Jericho and the destruction of Ai, which were a single episode, limited to a single generation, out of over a thousand years of Old Testament history as justification for what we might do, what a Christian nation might do, what people might claim to do in the name of Allah, sadly. It was one time and one generation out of thousands of years of Old Testament history. And perhaps to understand why God says what he says, we need to understand what was going on in Canaan. Canaan was full of what the Old Testament describes as detestable practices. Jericho and Ai were not cities full of nice, good people. The religious practices that went on were horrendous. Child sacrifice, incest, temple sex with people of both sexes, witchcraft, magic, spiritualism, necromancy. What one commentator, an American academic that I read this week, summed up as pagan hanky-panky. 
It's an interesting phrase to come across in an academic Old Testament commentary. Pagan hanky-panky. But it was grim stuff. Grim stuff. Child abuse was the norm. Child murder was the norm. Every single day in Canaanite worship. Sexual abuse was normative. Quite rightly today, we are outraged if we see or hear disclosure of such things happening in our society. The Canaanites, well, safeguarding was not a term that they were familiar with. It was horrendous on a massive scale. Went right to the heart of who they were as a population, right to the heart of who they were as a culture. And you see, if God had allowed that to continue, well, who knows what would have happened. And that's why, seemingly, he comes up with this drastic measure of every single person being put to death. 12,000 people on this one day alone. This isn't a bunch of land-grabbing Israelites wiping out at the request of their bullying God thousands of innocent, moral, God-fearing Canaanites. It was the necessary but regretful removal of a bloodthirsty, violent, occultic nation riddled with child and sexual abuse and with it the belief structure and behavior that accompanied it. And so we come full circle to the fact that God is a God of judgment, yes, but he's also a God of justice. And he's a God of mercy and a God of patience, and a God of compassion. And stories like this from the Old Testament, if we're honest, as I say, can lead some Christians to, to pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament. There was a, one of the early church fathers, a guy called Marcion, who was um, actually he was condemned as a heretic because he did exactly this. He said, well, the God that we follow in Christianity is, is different to the God of Judaism and the Old Testament. The God that we have in the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and forgiveness. And that was very attractive even to some of the early Christians. And there was this group called Marcionites who followed his teaching, even though he was condemned as a heretic. But actually, if we're honest, lots of us as Christians operate like this. Our tendency is to read books from the New Testament. And the books from the Old Testament, we tend to put to one side. And we think, almost subconsciously, of that God as a different God. One is a God of judgment, but we follow a God of love. Well, the only problem with that is that they're the same God. And God's love is also to be seen in the Old Testament, and God's judgment is also to be seen in the New Testament. Because the God of Jesus is also the God of Moses, Abraham, and Isaac, and Joshua. 
I love the story of a friend who, a few years ago now, was asked up to Balmoral about this time of year to preach for the royal family. And uh, over lunch, he was sitting next to Prince Philip. And as he is wont to do, uh, Prince Philip was discussing his sermon. And at one point in the discussion, Prince Philip looked at my friend and said, Hmm, bit too much of the Old Testament for me, though, this morning. More of a New Testament man myself. And he caught the eye of my friend. Why are you keen, so keen, on the Old Testament? And my friend thought very quickly and said, well, because Jesus was. The Duke smiled and nodded. They agreed to disagree. But the reality is that many of us operate like the Duke of Edinburgh. We're more of a New Testament person, if we're honest. But the reality is that the God is the God of the Old and New Testament. That Jesus took the Old Testament to be as authoritative and to be the Word of God. And he said he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And so this morning, the Joshua Paradox presents us with a God who is the God of Old and New Testament. A God of judgment and mercy, justice and compassion, truth and love. So full of justice that someone has to pay the price of sin. And so full of love that he sends his only son, who comes not to condemn the world, but to save it. God's judgment does come, and it rests upon Jesus. Jesus takes the judgment of God upon himself on the cross. For the world, for you, and for me. Out of love and mercy. And now calls you and me to live lives that show that we belong, that we no longer stand under judgment or condemnation, that we've received God's forgiveness. And therefore, we live lives that are characterized by love and peace and generosity and truth and mercy and forgiveness, but that we recognize also that this same God is a God who will also judge people. But he calls you and me now to stand against evil and sin, injustice and racism, wherever we find it, and to show that we belong to a different kingdom. Even though we might look at some passages in the Old Testament and still shake our heads and say, I'm so glad that Dave got that sermon and not me. <laughs>